About 20 years ago, two psychologists in Cleveland, Ohio, conducted an experiment on self-control that's still referenced today. They placed a plate of freshly baked chocolate chip cookies next to a bowl of white and red radishes. A radish is an edible root vegetable. Personally, I hate them. The snacks were placed in the same waiting room and a large number of college students were brought in and split into two groups. One group was allowed to eat the chocolate chip cookies. The other group could only eat the radishes. Afterwards, each student was asked to solve a puzzle that was designed to be unsolvable. The students were unknowingly being judged on how long they could power through their frustration before ultimately giving up. What they found was quite interesting. The students who had been allowed to eat the cookies worked on the puzzle for an average of 19 minutes before calling it quits, about the same amount of time as the students who weren't presented with snacks at all. The students that were only allowed to eat radishes averaged out to eight minutes of trying, unable or unwilling to push through the frustration for any longer. The psychologists called this phenomenon ego depletion, the theory that we have a limited quantifiable capacity for self-control, and that capacity decreases the more it's called upon for use. In other words, controlling yourself from acting on your impulses draws on the use of a metaphorical muscle that can be exercised to exhaustion. Following the rules and limiting yourself to radishes when you'd rather be eating cookies represents an exercise on self-control. So the radish kids went in the experiment with a depleted amount of willpower. What do cookies and radishes have to do with Lorena Bobbitt? Well, everything. This podcast tells the stories of people we empathize with or root for. Sometimes because of what they did and sometimes in spite of it. I'm Caleb Carter. This is Antihero. It was probably one of the most bizarre acts that has happened in this country in a long, long time. Everything about this case, it is so unique what she did. Everything about this case is crazy and bizarre. This is a classic case of irresistible impulse. On June 23, 1993, 24-year-old Lorena Bobbitt is in bed sleeping when her husband, 26-year-old John Bobbitt, stumbles into their home in Manassas, Virginia. He's been out drinking with a friend. He makes his way to the bedroom. They've been married since 1989. As a matter of fact, they just celebrated their four-year anniversary five days ago. But there hasn't been much to celebrate in this marriage. They met at a dance hall. Lorena was from Venezuela and barely spoke English. She was in America on a student visa. John was a Marine. He kept himself in peak physical condition, dressed well, and had an abundance of confidence. Lorena was petite with soft features, a beautiful face, and a shy but kind-hearted demeanor. Their physical chemistry was undeniable. They started dating immediately after they met. Lorena would later say, I thought John was very handsome, blue eyes, a man in uniform, you know? He was almost like a symbol, a Marine fighting for the country. I believed in this country. I was swept off my feet. Aside from being handsome, leading up to the marriage, John was a gentleman. He was kind, caring, and patient. Lorena had come to America not necessarily in search of a man, but in search of a good life, and she'd found both. Around the time her visa was set to expire, they got married and bought a home. Lorena says marriage was his idea. He wanted to take care of her, and he knew that she'd be allowed to stay in the country for good if they got married. John says she proposed to him at a restaurant with their mother looking on, urging him to say yes. He was 22 and she was 20. They both agreed the marriage was a bit rushed. They also agreed it went south quickly. In 1991, John was discharged from the Marines and found himself without steady employment. 
Lorena was working as a nanny for her best friend, Jana. To help out with money, Jana gave Lorena a job as a manicurist at a nail shop she owned. Lorena was now their only source of reliable income. And it wasn't long before the arguments about money started. They couldn't buy certain things, couldn't do certain things. And eventually their home went into foreclosure. Lorena was caught embezzling over $7,000 from the nail shop owned by her friend. She explained to Jana they were having serious money problems and that she was desperately trying to solve them. Jana forgave her, and over time, Lorena even paid the money back with interest. The tough times actually made her relationship with Jana stronger. The same cannot be said about her relationship with John. Their fights increased in frequency and intensity, and John eventually turned violent against his 95-pound wife. And the people close to Lorena saw the effect that the abuse was having on her. He kicked me. He told me that I told you to, not to cry. And he slapped me on my face. He pulled my hair. He, he kicked me in my stomach and he threw me to the wall. I again witnessed extensive bruising over the top and sides of Ms. Bobbitt's skull into her hairline and face line and down her neck and shoulders again as before. I did not, however, notice that all through the rest of her body as before. Her depression was very noticeable. Her sadness was very noticeable. And occasionally when she was doing my nails, she would burst into tears. She had an acute uh, deterioration of her mental state at that time and became psychotic. Then Lorena got pregnant. If there was hope that John would treat her differently because she was now carrying a child, that hope was quickly erased. John wanted no part of it. He said they weren't ready for a child. Their marriage was still fresh. He suggested, then insisted, then demanded that she get an abortion. Lorena felt an unimaginable amount of emotional pain, shame, and guilt. There was no chance she would ever forget about this. But if given enough time to heal and adequate love and support from her husband... She may have been able to recover from it, but there would be no love, there would be no support, and there would be no recovery. After the abortion, she became less and less willing to have sex with John. He'd been emotionally abusive up to this point and physically abusive. Now he'd introduced the most devastating form of abuse. He began forcing her to have sex with him, and it was very troublesome and confusing to her. They were married, and this was at a time when marital rape hadn't yet been clearly defined and brought to the attention of the world. She told him several times that this felt wrong and that she thought he was raping her. Lorena finally decided to leave. They separated. But it wasn't a clean break. A year later, they would be back together. The abuse quickly picked up where it left off, and they'd already agreed to separate for good when, on June 22nd, the day before their lives would change forever, Lorena went to the police station to request a protective order against her husband. It was a busy day at the police station. The officer dealing with her told her it'd take three hours before he could help her. So she left. Just before this happened, I had talked to her and she, she had said that, you know, what was happening to her. It was raping her. And, and as she said rape, I had some literature on that. Domestic violence, too. I gave her two articles of that. The next day, one of John's friends is in town, so they go out to have some drinks. Lorena stayed home and fell asleep reading pamphlets about spousal rape. They were on the nightstand when John got home. She was awakened by the sound of the apartment door being slammed. Soon after, John heads into the bedroom. According to Lorena, he does what he's done many times before. He has sex with her by way of force and then falls asleep. After years of enduring all imaginable forms of abuse, this was it. Lorena had reached her breaking point. Her capacity to control her impulses had been exhausted. 
she climbed out of bed and went into the kitchen. While drinking a glass of water, she spots a kitchen knife. She picks up the knife and goes back to the bedroom, peels the sheets off of his body, reaches down, grabs his instrument of torture, and removes it at the base. She leaves the apartment carrying his penis in her left hand and the knife in her right, jumps into her car and drives to Jana's house. At some point, she realizes she's still holding the penis, so she rolls down the window and tosses it into a field. John wakes up bleeding profusely, but not fully understanding what has happened. He wakes his visiting friend up, who was sleeping over for the night, and they race to the hospital. Once Lorena makes it to Jana's house, she explains through tears what she's done, and Jana calls the police. Lorena is able to give a rough estimate of where she was when she threw the penis out of the window. It's found in a field across the street from a 7-Eleven. Inside the store, an officer puts the penis in a plastic hot dog container, fills it with ice, and takes it to the hospital. It's successfully reattached after a nine and a half hour surgery. When the media comes to know that a woman has cut off her husband's penis, it's not long before something so bizarre makes its way to headlines across the country. It's the talk of the town, of every town. Everyone is having fun with it, but a serious crime had been committed. Lorena was arrested and charged with malicious wounding. She was facing up to 20 years in prison. But it would be John who appeared in a courtroom first. He'd been charged with spousal rape based on Lorena's accusations. Although there was significant evidence of physical abuse, proving spousal rape can be difficult. For each sexual encounter, John either denied having sex that day or insisted that it was consensual. It was essentially his word against hers. In November of 1993, just five months after the incident, a jury found John not guilty, the prevailing belief being that he probably was guilty, but he'd already been punished enough. Lorena's trial would begin two months later in January of 1994. Because John was acquitted of his charges, popular opinion was that Lorena would be convicted of hers. The logic was simple. If her reasoning for attacking John was that he was abusive and he raped her the night of and he was found not guilty, how could she avoid conviction? Nevertheless, her supporters showed up in herds. She was greeted by hundreds of people before and after each court appearance, many of whom held signs calling her an inspiration to all women. Lorena's defense attorney told the jury she'd suffered all types of abuse for years and she'd reached an inevitable breaking point. The phrase that was used most consistently was that she operated under irresistible impulse. Initially, the prosecution disputed that there was ever any abuse at all, but this argument fell apart pretty quickly. John stated he'd never been abusive to Lorena, and then the defense attorney produced paperwork that showed John had gone to see a family advocacy counselor who specialized in spousal abuse. And if that wasn't enough, there were dozens of people who testified under oath that they'd seen bruises all over Lorena on multiple occasions. In regards to the night of the incident, John initially said he didn't have sex with Lorena because he was too tired. Then, when confronted with lab reports that proved she'd had sex that night, he suggested that he had been known to sleepwalk and even to have sex in his sleep. So even though he didn't remember, it was possible. John didn't come off as very likable, and maybe more importantly, he didn't come off as very believable. In the prosecutor's closing argument, even she had to concede that abuse played a role in this incident. He was drunk. He wanted to have sex. She didn't. That's her right. He forced her to have sex. She was angry and she retaliated against him. But, you know, folks, we don't live 
in a society that is governed by revenge. We don't live in a society in which whoever has the biggest knife wins. Whether or not revenge was acceptable in this case wasn't the prosecutor's decision to make. Members of the jury, have you reached a verdict in the case? Yes. Is this your unanimous verdict? Yes. Would the defendant please stand? In the case of Commonwealth of Virginia versus Lorena Lenore Bobbitt, criminal number 33821, we, the jury, find the defendant, Lorena Lenore Bobbitt, not guilty of malicious wounding as charged in the indictment by reason of insanity. Based on the results in court, this incident was a stalemate. The legal system decided not to place blame on John or Lorena. There was no hero and there was no villain. But the public saw it completely differently. John was vilified, and when he wasn't being vilified, he was being mocked. On TV, on the radio, by comedians, by news anchors. But instead of going into hiding, John hired an agent and went on a worldwide tour. He called it Love Hurts. The tour mostly consisted of interviews at radio stations and news stations, appearances at clubs, car shows, spring break parties, and restaurants where he would autograph steak knives. He made hundreds of thousands of dollars, and this was before starring in his own adult films titled Uncut and Frankenpenis, later saying it seemed like the best way to prove it still worked. But the good times wouldn't last for John, as old habits die hard. He'd later be convicted of domestic battery against his girlfriend and would serve time in jail. He then be found guilty of harassing another woman after a breakup. He gets married two more times. His second marriage is annulled after 13 days, and his third wife files for divorce after John is charged with battering her. He eventually goes into construction work and does other odd jobs until he gets into a car accident in 2014 where another driver runs a red light. John sustains a broken neck in the accident and now lives off the disability settlement he received from the car accident. He still makes the occasional paid appearance, but he's now devoted his life to searching the Rockies for a treasure chest allegedly buried by the infamous millionaire Forrest Finn. Unlike John, Lorena is able to alter the course of her life for the better. After spending 45 days undergoing a psychiatric evaluation, doctors decided that Lorena wasn't a threat to herself or to anyone else. She officially divorces John, goes back to using her maiden name of Gallo becomes a citizen, refuses lucrative offers for many paid appearances, turns down a million-dollar offer to pose in Playboy, and rolls back in college where she meets David, her partner for the last 20 years. She has a daughter and starts a foundation dedicated to the prevention of domestic violence. The timid young woman who endured abuse for years without speaking up is long gone. She's confident and commands the room. In a speaking engagement at the Lincoln Memorial University in Tennessee, the president of the university introduced her as a celebrity. She took the mic and said, thank you, but let me correct you. I am not a celebrity. I am an advocate. And she's right. She is an advocate. But the way she became one also makes her a celebrity. To go from being a victim to committing one of the most bizarre acts of all time to now finding herself speaking at symposiums around the world. It's truly a remarkable turn of events. George Martin once wrote, a good act does not wash out the bad, nor a bad act the good. Each should have its own reward. John got his reward, and Lorena got hers. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean a lot if you rated it and left a review. It helps bring more visibility to the podcast and lets us know how we can improve. For more information about the show, visit us at antiheropodcast.com and follow us on Instagram at antihero underscore podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell a friend about us and don't forget to subscribe. This is Antihero. Antihero.